Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In uh, February 2018, the Winter Olympics were held in South Korea. And there was obviously huge interest um, in the presence at these games of a North Korean team. Uh, and perhaps the most uh, dramatic and sensational uh, contribution to the Olympics uh, from the North Koreans was the um, figure skating competition at which Ryom Tai Ok and Kim Ju Sik performed a stunning routine. And the music to which they performed this routine was A Day in the Life by the Beatles, uh, the last track on perhaps their most famous album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So in 2018, it was what? It was um, 51 years since Sgt. Pepper had taught the band to play. And yet here were figure skaters from perhaps the most isolationist regime on the face of the planet, um, a state absolutely committed in its opposition to everything that the West represented, choosing a track from a pop group that had split up many, many decades before. And I think it's a, a kind of stunning tribute to the enduring influence of the Beatles and um, a tribute that I think entirely justifies studying them, not, not as musicians, but as, um, I think, seminal figures in modern history. And, and I would go so far as to say that in 100, perhaps 200 years' time, they will still be remembered when almost everyone else from post-war Britain will have been forgotten. Uh, and it's a, a particular thrill for me to be talking about them here because um, we are doing this live at the Chalk Valley History Festival, um, just outside the village where I grew up. Uh, and so a place where I basically discovered the Beatles and listened to them for many, many years. So it's a, it's a kind of very personal for me to be here. Um, with me is Dominic Sandbrook, um, who is, uh, has written f a series of fantastic books on modern Britain um, and on the way that also that uh, modern Britain has kind of generated a global culture. And so, Dominic, the Beatles yeah. have been uh, a consistent theme of yours, but I think you might be slightly more sceptical than me about their enduring historical significance. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, it's great to be here. And, and such a fascinating topic. And yes, Tom, I am more sceptical. Um, I wonder whether the Beatles will have the same cultural capital in, let's say, a century's time or two centuries' time as they, as they, do, as they still do now. Um, we don't tend to listen to you know, music called <laughs> from the Victorian era, nor do we listen to George Formby or the sort of pre-Second um, World War music. We don't tend to listen even to jazz, particularly from the early 20th century. It's quite a niche taste. And I do wonder whether guitar, you know, guitar music, like all kinds of music, it dates, it comes from a particular time and place, and whether, you know, in the far future, our successors will be as interested in its supreme exponents um, as we are. But where I would agree with you, is I do think, you know, you look back at um, the period that I've written about, as you say, the 60s and 70s and so on, 
you know, people who seemed colossal at the time, Harold Wilson won lots of elections. My Tony Benn. Tony Benn. Jim Callahan. Yes. Yeah. Giants. Giants. Stalk exactly. the pages of your books. Yes. People that I've spent, I've wasted far <laughs> too much of my life um, thinking and writing about. But you're absolutely right. I mean, they have absolutely no traction now at all. I mean, anybody who's interested in Tony Benn under the age of 20, I mean, there's something not right. Um, but I think, I mean, I don't say that, uh, I, I, I realise I'm in danger of alienating my own readership, which is, which is utter folly. Um, but I do think, yes, culturally they mattered enormously. They defined Britain's image and the eyes of the world in a completely new way, I think, from 1964. From that moment they landed in America, Britain's image did change. And, and the way that Britain saw itself, I think, changed as well. So should we, um, should we, should we park the issue of their kind of long-term historical significance? Because you know where I'm going to be going with that. Yeah, um, of course. Everybody knows where you're going. Um, but but <laughs> should we look at the way in which they, they kind of serve as, as lightning rods for, for trends in, sure. in post-war Britain and the way in which they change it? Yeah. And I guess, so when I, so when I began listening to the Beatles, that was in the 70s. And their breakup seemed a, a very, very long time ago to me, even though this was kind of 1976. Um, but what seemed even further removed was the Second World War. It seemed a, an unimaginable distance, but of course it wasn't at all. And all the Beatles were born during, um, during the Second World War. And what, what I realise now, kind of, you know, with the, my, my age and wisdom yeah. that I've accrued... Your enormous experience enorm and enormous, expertise. Yes, is, is actually that they exist in the context of the Second World War? Yes, and I think, well, not just so much of the war as of the austerity that followed it and then the relative contentment of sort of mid-50s Britain. I mean, it's so, it's such a, a, a wonderfully telling moment that McCartney and Lennon famously meet at the church fete. Well, yes, we'll the, be coming back to that. You know, the Walton church fete. I don't want to give you a gift to start ranting about your <laughs> book on the history of Christianity, but... Um, um, yeah, I think they reflect, you know, they, they obviously reflect, there's a, there's a sort of complacency and a, a self-satisfaction about 50s Britain that, that is probably quite, it's at once reassuring but, but, but also alienating for them, particularly for John Lennon, I think. But, I mean, they're, they're on the kind of the, the, the prosperous suburbs of Liverpool, but Liverpool itself... I mean, even in the 50s, even in the early 60s, is still massively bomb-scarred. Yes, it is. You're right. Um, I mean, Lennon grew up in a house called, um, a house called Mendips, which yeah. tells you, um, <laughs> you know, just about the sort of his position and the kind of The working-class hero. Yeah, the working-class hero, exactly. But, I mean, Ringo and George Harrison, they both came from much more modest Ringo backgrounds. especially. I mean, he's, yeah. he's born in Bootle, which yes. is really in the heart of the kind of the, the bomb damage had a, of Liverpool. had a very poor and... Um, Yes, a blighted childhood, blighted by illness. I mean, he's in and out of a hospital, uh, Ringo. It's astonishing that Ringo, who's the one who really should be, um, you know, he should have a sense of himself as a victim and feel that he's being hard done by. He's incredibly jolly and... and well, cos he... Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, he, got, he got the lottery ticket of all lottery did, tickets, didn't yeah, he? He did. Um, he did. But, but I guess also what I mean about the Second World War is that um, when the Beatles go to Hamburg... They're going to a city that Fire even more than Liverpool yeah. bears terrible scars from the war. And I think the Beatles do recognise that because there's a famous account the first time that they, you know, they're in their minivan driving from Liverpool to, to Hamburg and it's a trip that then takes an incredibly long time. Um, they get to Arnhem and most of the Beatles get out to go and look at the war graves 
And John Lennon refuses. He doesn't want to do it. I think he goes off and nicks a harmonica, doesn't he? From, oh, my God, oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Give peace a chance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he, but so, it, so even then, Lennon is kind of has a, I mean, he's yes. anxious and twitchy about the legacy of, of, of the war. And then they get to Hamburg and the, the clubs that they're working in, the red light district, the, the, it's staffed by ex-Nazis and they've all got kind of missing limbs and eyes and things because this is the only place that they can get jobs. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, a, there's another dimension to it too, which is if you think when they get their MBEs in 1965, um, one of the big complaints is that the MBEs should be for people who, who the, the kind of people who saw action in the war. And you get lots of stories of servicemen sending back their medals in protest to Buckingham Palace or to Downing Street and complain to the Wilson government. And I think what the Beatles also are, Tom, is they're absolutely emblematic of that generation that were too young, obviously, to have fought in the war, too young to have been massively affected by it, and, and are sick of hearing about it. Yeah. So you definitely get that. That's a very pronounced thing in 60s British youth culture. You have this generation who have basically grown up in the shadow of the war, but they didn't know it at first hand. And... They're tired of being lectured about it. They see it as, as co they see the the heroism and the sacrifice and all those stories. They see them as basically comical and oppressive. Yeah, and 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 John Lennon's middle name is Winston, yeah. which he then famously goes on to change. <laughs> I guess the the other way in which the the Beatles are, you know, they have a kind of brush with the the lingering militarism of Britain after the war is that they they miss out on national service yes. very very narrowly. I mean, had they gone on national service, I think their story would have obviously been utterly different. And it's impossible to imagine them, you know, having the freedom that they had to experiment, to go to Hamburg, to do all that sort of stuff. So, so I mean, in terms of, of the youth culture generally of the 60s, the, the fact that national service ends is pretty fundamental, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. Although you could also argue that national service creates a kind of shared humour. Um, the sort of humour that you get with the goons and that sort of stuff that then gets picked up and, and made mainstream in the 60s. But you're right, I think there's a definite... The Beatles and their generation reflect a, a relaxation, a sense of loosening, a sense of opportunities. These are people, as you say, haven't had national service, but they've also grown up in a world of full employment... Uh, where more people are in education, but if you go out of education, you walk into a job, you can change jobs at the drop of a hat. There's a lot of money around, there's a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of optimism. And so, you know, great artists, they, they have greatness in themselves, but also they, they always reflect the sort of social and commercial conditions, if you like. The marketplace is there for the Beatles. There are an awful lot of young people with a lot of money, with more money than any similar generation before them. And there are a lot of promoters and so on, record companies, that are very keen to separate them from that money. And that is where bands like the Beatles come in. And Beatlemania, which... Um, so the, the, the Beatles get together, they, they, they um, hone their, their craft in Hamburg, um, in Liverpool, and then they go first, they go viral nationally, and then they go viral internationally. Um, and... Beatlemania, the, the, the way in which girls particularly just kind of scream their heads off. Yeah. It's kind of basically about fun, isn't it? And I guess it, it, it's um, one of the reasons why the, the kind of the memory of that lingers on decades after it happened is that it, it was filmed, that people could listen to the music and the conjunction of it served as a, a kind of emblematic display of 
coming out of austerity. Yeah, I think you're right, Tom. I mean, I could spend hours sort of ranting on about this because, as, as you say, I've written about it. I think Beatlemania... So Beatlemania is really 1963 and 1964. And um, it, it comes at a moment when the economy was growing enormously. So Harold Macmillan's Chancellor, Reginald Maudling, has un had unleashed what he called his dash for growth. So there's just tons of money swilling around. The economy is actually overheating in 1963. Um, rock and roll had come in in the late 50s, but rock and roll had actually gone into a bit of a decline. So a lot of record companies thought, well, you know, that was the big fad, and now what's next? And actually, if you looked at the charts in 1962, before the Beatles come through, there's all kinds of weird stuff. There's yodeling, there's um, sort of Hawaiian music, well, there's Ackerbilk. Well, you know, in... Um in 1987, Mrs. Thatcher was interviewed by Smash Hits yeah. and asked for I her favourite Beatles track, yeah. and she said, Telstar. Yes. Um, yeah. Her finger on the nub of youth as yeah. ever. <laughs> um, um, yeah, no, I mean, so Beatlemania, the Beatles come through at the, the turn of 1963, and they come through at the moment when there's, there's lots of young people, exactly that. There's people of 17, 18, particularly, as you say, girls, who, I mean, the classic thing is a girl, teenage girls who've got money, you know, they're either, they've either left school and they're maybe working in shops or something, or they are um, still at school, but they maybe work part-time at a hairdresser, so that's what Twiggy did, um, Leslie Hornby. Um, so there's, there's thousands upon thousands of people like this. Have you read, read Rob Sheffield's book? On the, on the Beatles. I haven't. A couple of years ago, and it's about, um, it's not so much about the Beatles, but about the fans' experience of the Beatles. Yeah. And he makes the wonderful point that, that the Beatles wrote their songs for, for girls. Yes. That, I mean, girls are the they key... they loved girls. Girls are the absolutely key driver of a lot of the sort of 60s, of a lot of the kind of 60s fashion, 60s music. Girls are the most important part of the, of the market. So, sort of Brian Epstein, when he's remodelling the Beatles... You know, when he takes them from Hamburg... Gives them their suits. Gives them their suits, gets them, you know, gets them to look clean and all this. This is all designed for teenage girls and their parents, you know, to make the Beatles acceptable for that audience. So you have that. And then I think another element of Beatlemania is there is a, a thirst for sensation in 1963. It's the dog days of the Macmillan government. You've got the Profumo scandal going on. There's a sense that there's a... The sort of... The order of things that has existed since the war... Yeah is tired, that has been, that the people talk of this old establishment that's old Etonian, and, clapped and out. So these northern, I mean, it's crucial, they're northern yeah. working-class boys. They represent something new, a new Britain. And you've got the end of, the, what is it, the, the Lady Chatley ban, as Philip Larkin yes, famously exactly. put it about discovering. Yeah, you've got the end of the, exactly, you've had the, um, in recent years, you've had the uh, Chatley trial. You've got... Um, the BBC and ITV competing very aggressively for younger viewers, so launching programmes like Ready, Steady, Go, which some of our older listeners may remember. These sort of pop music programmes, which would have been unthinkable 10 years before. So in other words, the arena, the stage is ready. All that is missing is the, are the actors. And the interesting question is, had the Beatles not met, had, had Lennon and McCartney not met in 1957, of the Walton Church fate. Would something else have... Would something else... Would there be another band that would have you know, enjoyed similar stardom? My answer to that would be yes. The, but, almost but, certainly would have but been. But it might not have been British, I guess. Would, would no, I think it would have been British. Okay. 
I think okay. there would have been a British band, and I also think there would have been a British invasion because right. the, the market in America, in particular, was sated. Um, they were just doing the same repetitive things. Also, crucially, it took British ba- a British band, a, a white British band, to re-export Black American music. But so, so, so we've talked about how the Beatles actually are, you know, in terms of, of um, the, the, the transformation in Britain in the early 60s are, are, are very significant, I mean, as a cultural phenomenon yeah. in, in a British context. But, of course, famously, they also become incredibly significant in America. Yes. And it's, it's a kind of explosive impact that they have when they go in in uh, 64. And it's a few months after Kennedy's been assassinated. And yeah. there is a feeling that... Um, just as the Beatles licensed people in Britain to have fun, so in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, the Beatles' appearance on the Ed Sullivan show says, yeah, it's fine. Just go and have a scream. Scream yeah, and I shout. Mean, I think, and shout. I think it makes a... It's, a, it's Obviously, this is why they had to be British. They have to speak English, um, but they have to seem exotic. And I think what they do is they, they're a different kind of Englishness that American audiences are not familiar with. So there's a lot of talk in America about their accents, and people can't place them. Um, I think you're, you're right that there's a sort of appetite for them because America has just had this enormously traumatic episode on the 22nd of November uh, where Kennedy has been shot. Um, so we're, you know, you're, you're literally talking about two months later. Um, I, I mean, the Beatles' impact in America, it'd be really, you know, it would be fun to find some sort of clever way of undervaluing it or puncturing it, but you can't because it's simply extraordinary. At one point, they hold the top five spots on the Billboard Hot 100, which is this coveted, you know, the chart which looms so large in American cultural life in the early 60s. And the Beatles are normal, one, two, three, four, five. And they, I, I think what's extraordinary about that is basically British music had, was nothing before that. I mean, Ackerbilk, bizarrely, it had Cliff. had had a Cliff, but Cliff had made appearances in America, but, to, but to universal indifference. I mean, nobody had been interested in Cliff. And I think part of it was that Britain itself, the British brand, as it were, was so closely associated, particularly with empire. It's seen as old, it is stuffy, tweedy. hierarchy. Exactly, it's tweedy, it's Harold Macmillan. And then these guys arrive from Britain and they're a completely new kind of um, Britishness. And I think, as, as well, Tom, I mean, I noticed the talk was billed. It today was. As, was that your doing? Well, the, we're replacing uh, somebody who is due to talk about the British Empire. So to persuade people to come here, I had to put in something about the British Empire yeah. for the title. So uh, obviously, I'm sorry, we're not talking really about the British Empire. Um, <laughs> but They're here now, right? They're I mean, here now. And they're not leaving. Well, yeah. I mean, there are people leaving over there. I'm aware that people listening to this on the podcast, it will make no sense at all. No, 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 that's but, fine. I mean, it never makes any sense no. on the podcast anyway. Um, but on the British Empire yes. angle, I mean, they become... They, they become members of the British Empire. <laughs> well, yeah, members of the Order of the British Empire. Uh, yes, yes, they do. Yes. They do. Um, and they wear British imperial outfits. They do. Yeah, yeah, so Sergeant Pepper is quite subversive, isn't it? In it a is. way that, that I don't think I'd properly appreciated when, when I first listened to it. No, I think that's right. But they can only do that because the British Empire is already gone. Yeah. I think that's the interesting thing. And that's when, when I saw the name of the, <laughs> the event, I was like, what? <laughs> because I think the key, one of the key things to the, to the Beatles' success is they are able to export Britishness, as it were, abroad, because Britain is no longer feared, because Britain is no longer the bully. I mean, there are obviously places that have kind of memories of Britain as the bully, but because Britain is no longer, you know, Lord Palmerston, gunboat diplomacy, throwing its weight around, and Britain is already 
by the early 1960s beginning to look a bit of a joke. That sort of carnivalesque Britishness. Oh, yeah. we'll wear you know Union Jack pants or something. Yeah, swinging sixties. Swinging, swinging sixties sort of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. I think you can do that. So, in other words, the barriers to British cultural exports are lower because Britain is not the, the sort of domineering military power anymore. But also, anymore. I mean, just picking up on what you said about it, it, it takes a white British band to re-export black music yeah. to white America. I mean, they they. In quite a subtle way, they they do intrude on the the very toxic racial politics of America in in the sixties, because, for instance, they don't play in segregated yes. stadia, yeah. and they are very very um, open about the huge influence that that black American music had on them. They don't play in South Africa, and so there is also that sense of a kind of internationalism that will become increasingly a part of their brand moving through the 60s. Yeah, and I think actually that's there from, as you say, from as soon as they make that first flight to America at the beginning of 1964, I think even at that moment, they are, they're not ceasing to be a British phenomenon, but the Britishness is then in tension with their kind of international phenomenon, if you like. Um, the, on the racial stuff, I mean, that's even more pronounced, I think, with the Rolling Stones, because the Rolling Stones' yeah. debt to sort of Mississippi um, Delta blues is even, is, is far more... But, I mean, Eric Clapton a, likewise has a massive debt to them, and that doesn't stop him having a, a, a massive racist rant at one point. Yeah, but that's true. <laughs> so, yes. so it's not inevitable. No, so the two don't necessarily go hand in hand, but you're right. I think the Beatles... I mean, the Beatles are by far the most popular, and also the most popular with, with sort of middle American girls. Yeah. So I think that's very important. Um, and but, but so they, they do come to be seen by conservative elements in America as a threat. They do. Um, well, obviously... You, so can come we on. come on to... Um, yeah, bring the, it up. Bring it up. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so John Lennon famously says that the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. And yes. he, he says that to Maureen Cleave in, in an, an evening standard. In the Evening Standard in London, and it's run in the Evening Standard, and nobody in Britain pays any attention to it at all. And then it gets reprinted in America as they're going for, um, in 66, they're yeah. going for, for what will turn out to be their last tour. And as it were, all hell breaks out. And you start to get people uh, holding public burnings of, yes, of they're not just albums, but Beatles wigs. Organised by radio stations. Well, so, so um, are the Beatles minstrels of the Antichrist, <laughs> asked the Christian Crusade in October 1966. And David A. Noble, a Tulsa pastor, said of the Beatles that the communists, through their scientists, educators and entertainers, have contrived a scientific technique directed at rendering a generation of American youth useless through nerve jamming, mental deterioration and retardation. Yeah, strong. And the thing is... Strong words. I think he has a point. Well, you know who would agree with you? Elvis. So Elvis also no, believed this. I, I have a slightly different perspective from Elvis. From Elvis. Yeah. Very similar characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so El Elvis by this point is kind of hanging out with Nixon, isn't he? And getting, he well, in due course, he's going to get a badge. Uh, well, but... Elvis, you're right. He goes to visit Richard Nixon at <laughs> the White House and, um, uh, yes, he says he wants to volunteer to be a, f a federal agent. Yes. Nixon gives him a badge <laughs> and he says the Beatles are importing communist... And they're very keen on drugs, which Elvis claims he's not. <laughs> he's never at all. had. And he then goes off and <laughs> yes. gobbles some pills in the White House. Yeah, but anyway, come on, give us your theory. Give us your. Well, um, I, th I think that, that American 
religious conservatives are right to be anxious about the influence of the Beatles because I, I do think, and this is, this is my justification for saying that they have a, a kind of world historical significance, I think that the 60s are a, a period of, of cultural transformation and convulsion in the West that I think future generations will rank alongside the 1520s. So I think that we, at the moment, and, and this is a, a kind of huge part of what people call the culture wars, the sense yeah. of cultural dislocation and conflict that, that you know, we're massively convulsed by. I think this is part of a continuous process that perhaps in, I don't know, 30, 40 years will get a name like the Reformation that will enable it to be studied in its entirety. But obviously if you're, you know, you're, you're in the, the 1570s looking back, the, the, what's happening is, is very confused. You don't have a sense of what's going on in quite the same way. I think we're living through something very similar and I think that the 60s are, are basically the kind of the epicenter of this convulsion. And I think that the Beatles are the kind of the great minstrels of it. And so the parallel that I would make um, with, with people of previous generations wouldn't be with music hall or, or, or jazz or anything like that. It would be with um, the hymnists. So it would be with, with, with the Wesleys yeah. for Methodism. But above all, it would be with the hymn writers in the 1520s, Luther and so on. Because th the impact of Protestantism is certainly conveyed through the pamphlets that Luther is writing. I mean, that's clear. But it is also conveyed to people who can't read through song. Yep. And I think that, you know, the Beatles and, and, and all the music of the 60s, the impact is massive because it, it makes accessible and entertaining re-evaluations of fairly fundamental so you're moral, not talking, we're religious, not talking about cultural principles that, that, that now we take for granted. You're not talking about please, please me here, right? I'm you? not talking... Well, you're talking, well, about, well, to it, but, you're but, talking about all you need is love. I'm talking, yeah, well, I'm, I'm talking about the idea that love matters. Yeah. And so I do think that, you know, please, please me, or, you know, all, the, all the, the Beatlemania songs, the way in which love is what matters, having fun is what matters, I think is subversive in the context. I, but it, but, but it obviously it expands out. And, and we, as we come into 1966, 1967, yeah. the summer of love, um, Sgt. Pepper and so on, all you need is love. That is a very ideological movement, I think. Tom, I would disagree with that completely. Of course you would, because and, and are you now going to mention The Sound of Music? <laughs> no, I'm not going to mention The Sound You're of Music. You're going to mention how no. The Sound of Music sold more, more albums than... Uh, well, it did, and I'm glad you've brought <laughs> that up. It's clear, it, it shows that you remember your reading, which is I very do. pleasing. I do, I um, do. But, I mean, if you look at what people were listening to in um, sort of Edwardian musical, or the songs that soldiers sang when they went into the trenches, I mean, they're all about love and their sweethearts and holding hands and she's holding, you know, burning a candle for me. And love has always played a part in popular song. Absolutely. But what happens is that that sense of, of love as something that should properly animate society, that is more important than the strictures of parents or priests or school teachers or any of the kind of representatives of traditional hierarchy. It's the impact, I suppose, because it's amplified by technology, by TV, by radio, and so on, it, it, it generates a groundswell that starts to undermine structure, traditional structures of authority. And then in the, the second half of the 60s, the Beatles play a key role in rendering this a, 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 an overtly ideological program. Okay, Tom, so that, that raises a really interesting question, which is how much of the Beatles' um, 
the agents of change, which you seem to suggest that they are, or how much, how much are they reflecting... I think it's both. ...trends that were, would already have come to fruition? I think it's both. And I think that that's, that's what makes them so fascinating as kind of culture. So what about, let's say, India? The Beatles? Huge. I mean, that's yes. a huge thing because Western society, particularly in Britain, had always had a, a kind of Orientalist fascination... And there'd always been this fascination with Oriental spirituality and so on. But do you think that would have come about in the 60s without the... In the same way... I mean, the Maharishi is already there in London giving a talk, I think, when the Beatles first discover him. So at, the, at one of the well, hotels in... And one of the Mayfair or Park Lane hotels. So, so, so all the Beatles are brought up as Christian. Um, Lennon and McCartney meet, at, famously, you know, as we've church said, fate. at a church yeah. fete. Um, George Harrison has... You know, he, he's he's very interested in in spirituality, Catholic spirituality, and in money. Uh, he's certainly interested in money as well. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> complaining about the tax man. Um, and the, they come to see Christianity as boring, because Christianity in 1960s Britain is boring. It's it's stale. It's dull. It's associated with. Um, hierarchy, it's losing its self-confidence. This is, you know, the period where people in the church are saying they don't believe in God. Yeah. Um, and so... <laughs> Honest to God and uh, all yeah, that stuff. And, and so that's why I think it's perfectly reasonable for, for John Lennon to say that they're bigger than Jesus. They certainly are in, um, in, in England. But I think that um, they, they have absorbed a lot of Christian assumptions. And, and so, you know, the key message of, uh, you know, peace and love which Ring, even Ringo says all the time, peace and love. Yeah. These are basically Christian ideals. And all you need is love. I mean, that's, a, that's a, a, an enduring Christian message. And the fact that um, they, they sing all you need is love as their contribution to um, a, a global festival of culture, you know, all these satellites around the world joining people up from around um, countries uh, around the entire globe. And the Beatles singing all you need is love. It's, it's Britain's contribution to what they see as a kind of universal message. Yeah. But it draws on pretty fundamental Christian ideas. But the problem is because Christianity, is, it, its image is so boring and dull and staid, the Beatles are not interested in that. And so the Maharishi kind of provides that. And the Maharishi, you know, he's packaging his message for Western tastes. Yeah. Rather in the way that, you know, Indian food is packaged <laughs> he's for British He's the chicken tikka masala of, yeah, of he's gurus. the chicken tikka masala of, of, uh, of mid-60s um, spirituality. Yeah. And, you know, George Harrison is kind of, I guess, the archetype of this because... He remains a very Catholic kind of Hindu. And the way in which My Sweet Lord, the, 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 the smash hit that he releases after the Beatles have broken up, the chorus goes from you know, Alleluia, Alleluia, to Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. But it sounds exactly the same. Yeah. And I think that um, they are, they're, again, they're, they're kind of, they're both representative and influential on, the, on what seems to me a pretty fundamental trend, certainly here in Britain, that... Um, you know, the guiding assumption now of our, our elites is that all religions are basically the same. Surely they all teach you peace and love and the basic fundamentals. And I think that the, the, the role the Beatles play in that is, is fairly hefty. Was that turning into a bit of a Paul McCartney-ish impersonation there when you said peace? I didn't notice it, but if it was, it may be.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about, about the Beatles and their wealth and celebrity. So yeah. I'm trying to think if there have been people... Imagine no possessions. Well, yes. Um, uh, John Lennon and his massive house in, where is it, Weybridge? Yes. Um, St. George's Hill, where the diggers had tried to yes. set up their commune in the 17th century. And it's now a gated community. Yeah. And I've well. tried to go and visit it so many times, and every time I get turned away by Russian bodyguards. <laughs> Both Win Stanley and uh, John Lennon would, you know... It's strange, that you have, it's strange that you have nothing else to do, Tom, than <laughs> um, hang around outside the gates of other people's Well, I houses. do, but I, you know, periodically I try and get to see it. But I'm trying to think if there are people before the Beatles, in British, certainly in British cultural history, who had either the international fame or the amount of money overnight that they did. And I think that's another, to me, that's another obvious area where they're pioneers, where it's hard to... So this is why, I mean, what they do is they do what entrepreneurs and manufacturers would have done 100 years earlier, which is they buy country houses. Yeah. It's interesting that they haven't freed themselves from the shackles of their Britishness. So their instinct is immediately, I mean, Lennon and I think uh, George, they buy, they buy how, these stockbroker belt houses but, and then they go into the bigger sort of national trust style. But Paul, Paul McCartney doesn't. No, that's and what makes him and interesting. And what's interesting yeah. is Paul McCartney, who's always seen as the kind of the more conventional of, of Lennon and McCartney, is actually much more interested in the avant-garde and is at the heart of swinging London when it's at its most Well, that's swinging. because of his association. I mean, that's an interesting thing about class because McCartney has an in with the Asher family, which is a very yeah. well-connected, patrician, yeah. culturally connected family through his relationship with Jane Asher. Yeah. He basically moves in with her, doesn't he? Yeah. And, um, and that's how he be- discovers Stockhausen and all this sort of business yeah yeah um but i think what's interesting about them is that they are they're a new kind of sort of elite 
that Britain had not previously produced. So Dickens wasn't unmoored from his society in the way that they are to become later on. Do you not think? I, yeah, I do. And um, I think that that's what makes um, particularly John and Yoko interesting. Because obviously... The Harry and Meghan of the 1960s. The Harry and Meghan of the 60s. It's, it's evident that, that you know, John Lennon living in his stockbroker belt house is desperately unhappy because he's lonely and bored and he doesn't know what to do with it. And he is kind of deracinated, I guess. I mean, he's lost his roots. Yeah. Um, and so he's looking for something else. And his relationship with Yoko, you know, I mean, it's symbolised by his replacing Winston as his middle name with Ono. I mean, it's quite a... Yeah, it's kind of wonderfully culturally symbolic. Yeah. But he blazes a path that many people have followed now. And you could say that the whole, you know, the, the, it, he blazes a path that, that is currently convulsing the nation, I think. Yes. No, I think that's true. I mean, Lennon's an interesting one, isn't he? Because he basically, I mean, ironically, having said he was, the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, he then decides to dress like Jesus. He does, to, yes. And to look like Jesus. And his sort of role, I mean, he definitely sees himself. I mean, he would love your thesis, because your thesis is, is how he thinks of himself, right? As a moral prophet rather than as a, as a musician. But do you think that sort of moral prophecy still has force all these years on? I mean, do you think young people give a damn about John Lennon now? I don't think they give a damn about John Lennon, but I think the, the way in which he set himself up as a kind of holy fool, the way in which um, he deliberately sought to trash things that people held sacred... So I watched Dorian Linsky was here at the festival yesterday talking about protest songs. And he made the, the, the kind of wonderful point that, that John Lennon's protest songs are basically lists <laughs> of things that he doesn't ag agree with, yeah. uh, that he doesn't like. Um, and there's the song God uh, on, on his first solo album, where he goes through all the things that he had previously valued and now he, he, he doesn't. So he, he famously says, I don't believe in Beatles. But he also says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in Buddha, I don't believe in yoga. Basically, he is th the way in which you, um, you get cultural capital by trashing things that people hold sacred seems to me quite significant. Yeah. As a, a, because that's, that's what we're living through at the moment. And, and he really does seem to me a trailblazer there. There's a story, isn't there, that Elton John went to visit him in New York and um, saw John Lennon getting very cross because one of the golden doorknobs had come off in the apartment <laughs> or something. Well, and well, and well, Elton, says, Elton says to him, imagine no possessions, John. <laughs> and John says, it's only an effing song. <laughs> um, quite, quite. But because I think that, that the hypocrisy is also a crucial part of it. And, and that's the, you know, that, that also is a massive part of the tension that the cultural revolution that we're going through is having to wrestle with. Because you've got people who are, you know, casting down the, the, the statues, but then filming it on their iPhones, yeah. which are made from materials that have been sourced by basically slaves. So the, the, the hypocrisy there is also, you know, John Lennon yeah. and, and Yoko Ono. It's a great sort of... You know, they're, they're in their hotel room and they have to stop their, their protest because the chambermaid has to come in and make <laughs> yes. their bed. Yeah, I was I like mean, that it's, detail. It's... Yeah. it's kind <laughs> That's of... That's their bed in, isn't it? In That's Amsterdam. their bed in, yeah. in Amsterdam. Um, yeah. So I think, I think, I mean, I think he's, he's, I, I think John Lennon in particular will be a, a, a subject of, of great fascination to future historians. I mean, do you not think so? I... Well, I've written about John Lennon. I mean, I've never had worse um, feedback than when I've written about John Lennon because, you, you know, I don't really hold a candle for John Lennon. Um, Is that morally or musically or...? Um, 
sort of, I, I, he's he's everything I dislike in a person. Um, that's <laughs> so. Go, I mean, that's quite. On, let's, I know mean, that's quite strong. Um, <laughs> so let's tease this out. Um, what what do you not like about? I don't like beards. Um, uh, Long hair. I don't like. I mean, to me, he, the hypocrisy is is incredibly glaring. Um, the the empty, self-regarding kind of moral gestures, which you know you love with all your holy men and all that sort of thing. I don't like that. Um, you see, I don't think they were empty. I think he was he was he was looking around. I mean, the bed in for ways I, to I think, fill the. I think the bed in is laughable. Emptiness. The bed in is laughable. Yeah, but he was deliberate. You know, he he tried lots of things and lots of them didn't work. But he did become. You know, he he drew attention to his campaign for peace, and you may say it didn't actually work. Yeah. But the idea of give peace a chance, the idea that, that militarism per se is wrong, the suspicion of war, of armed forces, I think that's a, now a huge part of cultural life, certainly in Britain, certainly in America, in a way but that it's not it like no wasn't one, in the it, 60s. But it's not like nobody had thought of that before, Tom. I mean, think about how, how what a huge thing pacifism was in the 1930s when people were signing peace pledges, or the the moral fervour of the Victorian era. I mean, the, the idea that this he's the first person to have thought of it, or the first way, person to popularise them. I'm not in any way saying that, but I think he popularises it in a distinctive way that becomes associated with youth culture, and each generation inherits it and broadens it out. You know, he, he used to work at Speak Airport. He I used know. to spit in people's sandwiches. Um, but it's that element of savagery conjoined with... That's just with, bad behaviour. It, of course it's bad behaviour. If, if I spit but, but, in your sandwich at lunch, will you say, oh, that's, that's interest, an interesting moral position or something? Of course you won't. No, but, but, but you didn't write Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, that's one thing in my favour. Come on, I mean... Right, but have we got anything more to say on, on the subject of Beatles as um, epical historical figures before we open it up? I to, think we should open questions. it up. I think we should open it up for questions. Okay. Yeah. Does, does, does anyone have. You'll have, have to shout incredibly loud. Does anyone have questions? Hold on, we'll just, we'll just get, you a, get, get you a microphone and you can twist and shout. Dylan was writing songs like With God on Our Side, Times Are Changing, sort of pre Beatles. To what extent do you think he influenced them? and maybe deserves some of the credit you're stealing for the Beatles. Go on, Tom. You can, you're, you're probably a Bob Dylan fan, are you? I'm not a Bob Dylan fan. No, I'm not either. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean I can't recognise it. I mean, I think his lyrics are terrible. I can't <laughs> believe he got the Nobel Prize. Yeah, I, I mean... I, I mean, you just I, read them out. They're absolute gibberish. <laughs> Beatles lyrics are much better. He's not she Simon loves Le you, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's There's not a kind Simon of honesty Le bon, is he? There. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Dylan is a huge cultural figure as well, and we're not saying that the, that the Beatles are absolutely, you know, equivalent to the 60s. Um, the Stones and, 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 and Bob Dylan and, and, and you know, these are, these are huge figures as well. But I don't think Bob Dylan ha had a fraction of the Beatles' global popularity. And I think it's, the, um, it's that global popularity that makes the Beatles significant as figures of historical study. So I'm not saying, this isn't a discussion about musical influence. And it may well be that Dylan's musical influence has been just as great or, or possibly greater than that of the Beatles. But I think as, as, as figures who served as lightning rods for a convulsive period of social and cultural change, the Beatles are unrivaled. I, I would completely agree with that, Tom. I think um, the difference is that uh, Bob Dylan appeals to a specific constituency, I would say. There's, there's, he's obviously got a, a market that, by and large, I would guess is 
pretty well educated, affluent, um, probably sort of liberal politically and so on and so forth. Whereas I think the Beatles appeal you know, to people who are not political, to people who are maybe not particularly well educated. Um, it's obviously so much greater. And as you say, you know, the Beatles are an extraordinary international reach. I mean, it's hard to imagine that example that Tom gave at the beginning of the North Korean figure skaters. They're unlikely to do I'd it. I'd love to, a, to see it, though. To a Bob Dylan. Like a Rolling Stone. That would yeah. be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, I would. I think also, though, uh, the, the difference between Dylan and the Beatles, and, and indeed the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, or the Who, or any, is that they, they, they start the 60s and they end with the 60s. And there's a kind of perfection mm. to their story. So I remember we, we did an episode on um, one of the very earliest podcasts we did was on the year 1981. And so we talked about Diana and how the story of Princess Diana, simply as a story, is kind of unbelievable. It's so perfect. The kind of the tragedy of it, the arc of it. And I think the Beatles are very similar. I think the story is one that bears endless repetition. It's kind of like the modern matter of Britain. And the way in which they are kind of playing emblematic roles at all the key moments in the 60s, that they're, 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 they're in Hamburg, they're, they're in America after the assassination of Kennedy, they're there during the, um, the kind of, the, the religious and cultural convulsions of America in the mid-60s. They're hippies. They're there when it all goes, starts to go wrong and to sour. And then they break up at the end of the 60s. I think makes their story just kind of perfect. It's kind of mythic, isn't it? I mean, yeah. they're, mythic, they're mythic heroes. And I think that, exactly, they have that trajectory that nobody else has. Any other questions? We've got a couple over... Oh. Uh, uh, yes, hi. I'm a big fan of the podcast. And uh, I'd just like to congratulate Tom for getting through a whole episode without mentioning genitalia. <laughs> um, well, two he was virgins. Doing, yeah. The two virgins. Let's get. Let's let's give that a shout out. The, the famous John and Yoko full frontal nude album cover. He's absolutely incorrigible. I, I think, why I do think, you encourage him? I think did it, did, it wasn't it that that prompted the Queen to say to um, some EMI bigwig, the Beatles have gone very strange. Yes, she they? did. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. What well, isn't it? Uh, didn't they go and they presented it to the head of EMI or whatever, Sir Joseph Lockwood? Yes. And he said, Paul McCartney would look a lot better <laughs> naked than you. Um, anyway. There, there was a question, sorry. Sorry, yes. Um, you set us off. Yeah, well, I just sort of wondered, I mean, from the, the cultural relevance of them in the last 50 years is obviously because, I mean, I have a generation probably like you where post-Beatles but grew up listening to their music and, you know, most famously, obviously, Oasis was very um, influenced by them as well. But I sort of wonder whether or not, back to kind of where you started this talk, you know, does the passing of the last Beatle whenever Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr die mean that they kind of just go into being historical figures and whether or not they do actually have a legacy that kind of goes beyond that? I think they will. Um, I, I, for what it's worth, and I, you know, I'm not in any way an expert on music at all, but I think their music will last. Um, and I think that even if it... I, I, I think that... the I think particularly McCartney's tunes are, are so strong. Live and let die. Frog chorus. Inevitable cry goes up. <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> I, think, I think that they will endure. But, but in a way, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I think that as figures who are representative of a convulsive period, not just in British, but in global history... 
they will be subjects of enduring historical fascination. I, I suspect. I Dominic of, disagrees. I, I sort of agree with the implication of the question, which is that you know, youngsters in 2050 will be listening to very different kind of music that we can't now imagine. Made with different, dif it's highly unlikely that it will involve guitars. I would have thought, um, and the Beatles will seem like a historical curiosity. They will be as remote um, to our successors as Victorian figures are to us. Now, that's not to say that a great Victorian like Dickens or, or Darwin, they, yeah. they haven't left a legacy, but to, will most people know who George Harrison was in 2070? I think it's utterly implausible. Um, so, you know, m people who are fascinated in history, by history, will know who they were, but... but Beyond that, well, that's I'm the not, most I'm, I'm saying. That's the most I'm saying. But on the music, I do think that they seem to have a, a kind of, um, certainly so far, a, a degree of immortality that that no but, other. But band. do you not think that's so not almost even the Stones, not even the Beach Boys, not even the Who? Do you not, they, do you not think that's almost as, as slightly? I mean, what, one thing that really strikes me thinking about the Beatles in my own childhood was I first encountered them at school. Now I went to a very, very old-fashioned prep school in the West Midlands where we were, where we sang Yellow Submarine in about 1980, 1981 or something. So very quickly, I mean remarkably quickly, they had gone from being the stuff of chart toppers to the stuff of kind of, you know, six or seven year olds singing as a sort of their little class hymn almost. And I think that, that yeah. I can see their music surviving like that. Yeah, like nursery, I mean, yeah, like nursery rhymes. Nursery rhymes. Like nursery so rhymes, I think that exactly. that will be, yeah. I, uh, but okay, I, uh, we agree. We, we do. Agree. We agree. Well, kind of, Dominic, kind yeah. of. <laughs> Which um, one of us? I, you, oh, I you, think you I was right. John I think Lennon. I was right. You're, but you're, I'm just wondering. No, you're John Lennon. No, you're, uh, no I think you are. C why? In what way? Because I'm more enthusiastic. That's what yeah, people always say. People always say you're a cynical grump. <laughs> and people say that I'm wide-eyed. They uh, do. Tiggerish. Tom was very. Tom was. Um, Tom was absolutely outraged because the Times ran a review of the podcast and they said he was Tigger, and I was Owl. And I, then I had my phone, I text, I can't believe they've called you Owl, I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, so um, Lennon and McCartney. I've got a question up here at the top of the hill. Well, not the top, but halfway up. You mentioned before that we are probably living for a cultural revolution similar to the one that our forefathers lived in the 1520s and that Martin Luther published his pamphlets, but also the songs at the time were very influential. So what happened there? Did the singing in church move from Latin to German? To, wh wh why did you say that? Because I think that profound cultural, social, dare I say religious upheavals um, are not just a matter of, you know, in the context of, of the 16th century theology or in the context of... Um, you know, the second half of the 20th century of um, a Gramscian ideology or Foucault or thinkers, all of whom are obviously are very, very important. But it's the way in which it gets propagated out um, so that people kind of just imbibe it. Um, and I think that, you know, the kind of the, the, the way in which the Beatles' music and the music, the, the message is about the importance of love, about the importance of giving peace a chance. Um, succeeds generation to generation I think is is kind of very important and it it, it gels a, a lot with the kind of ideological impetus of what's going on and that's part a crucial part of why it's so potent um, so the parallel is is that that in the Reformation 
the uh, you know or or in kind of latter iterations of Protestant reawakening, um, the reawakenings, the reawokenings. Um, music is a very very important part of it because it conveys messages that will reach people that more overtly programmatic, ideological, intellectual messaging simply won't. Yeah, music and art, I suppose. Music I mean, and music art. And, yeah, I, and I see things. it's raining, and if only yeah. the Beatles had written a song about the rain. <laughs> Are you going to start singing? Please don't. People run and hide their heads, I think, don't they? Oh. They might as well be dead, so, but, um, which is a cheery thought. So, have we got one more question? Clearly, glutton for punishment. Yes, I do. Um, it's somewhat tangential to the, the gentleman on the hill. Uh, if we assume that we are going through a cultural revolution similar to the 1520s now, um, and given the context of where Britain was and where Britain is today with the existential question of whether Britain actually does exist, to what extent would you argue that Britain, the British Empire and the British Cultural Revolution was in fact British or English? Okay, that's an absolutely colossal question. Um, my answer would be that it was British, that there was such a thing as Britishness, and indeed, for a lot of people still is, that there was an identity that went beyond Englishness. Um, and that, obviously, that has now corroded a, a little bit, that the decline, because Britain is no longer able to really define itself against an, an, an other which was always Catholic France for a long time. Once that threat receded, then Britishness itself seemed less necessary, I suppose. Um, you're, and you're right that the empire became very closely associated with Britishness. And so I think if... Let's imagine a scenario in which um, Great Britain, as it were, did break up. Then when people look back at where that, hap where that started, where that process began, actually the, that period... 50s, 60s is where they would start, I think, with the decline of the British Empire, the growth of Scottish and, and Welsh um, nationalism and so on. Um, and, yeah, the sort of questioning of icons, of sacred symbols, if you like, um, the sort of revising of history, all that, that sort of stuff. I mean, that does feel like... I think Tom is right that the 60s does feel like the epicentre of that. And I think... Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think on the, on the issue of, of Britishness and specifically the Beatles, I think um, the fact they come from Liverpool is quite significant because famously Liverpool is open to American influence because records are coming um, in from America imported by sailors and so on. And so that's how the Beatles are, are, are particularly alert to this cultural influence. Um, but it's also massively influenced by Irish immigration and so there's always an awareness of of ireland as a kind of hinterland as, as well as england um and you know paul mccartney releases what was it give ireland and back to the irish give yeah. ireland back to the irish um a, 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 as a, a he's, very sophisticated, he's very sophisticated he's very sophisticated contribution um, to the thorny but of course issue. But, but, but of course he also um famously sings mull of kintyre and um one of the uh, i mean it, 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 it's quite I, I is it a deliberate contrast to, to, to John Lennon and Yoko in their mansion singing about no possessions that after the Beatles break up, he basically retires to a farm in, on the Mull of Kintyre and, and leads quite an, a normal life. I mean, but that's what I would do life. if well, the rest is history breaks up. Yeah. You would go to New York. I'm I not John Lennon. I'm not John Lennon. You would be the one in the bloody penthouse. I would be by the side of a lock in a farmhouse. 
simple life, writing columns for the Daily Mail. Yeah, but you've, 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 reti you've retired to the country, whereas yeah. I'm in the heart of swinging London. Okay. So enjoying Jane Asher sitting there. Jane the Asher sitting in the corner, yeah. So <laughs> okay. casting Catherine as Yoko. Yeah. I'm sure she'd be. She'd be delighted. Thank that. God she's not here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Any, any more questions before we all get drowned by the rain? Isn't one area of um, huge influence of the Beatles the fact that millions of, millions of people around the world learnt to speak English listening to Beatles lyrics, listening to Beatles songs? I think that, I think that probably is a, um, an interesting point. I think no, no non-English speaking band could have had the success that they had. Um, I think English was already something of a lingua franca. Yeah. Um, and they're often, you know, they were very... I mean, obviously, it's interesting that they'd gone to Hamburg in Germany, a place where people already spoke pretty good English, but obviously the British Army was stationed, so there would be people with who are even more exposed to English. But they record versions of their songs, some of their early so songs in German. Which yes, they do. They wouldn't have broken through, I think, if they'd sung in German. No, Germany, do you? No. But they're, I mean, they're very European figures. So oh yeah, they're, they're very influenced. In by France, they're called the Yeah Yeahs, aren't they? Yeah, but 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 the the the, um, the you know the the, the German um, artistic elite. The the um, exes, as they're called, the existentialists, yeah. who in turn are influenced by France. So they're very influenced by that, and um, well, the and they get their, their beetle cut the, comes yeah. from Paris on the yeah. trip to Paris. So so they they are not solely British figures; they are very European, I think. But I agree about yes about the the the, the English language yeah. aspect of it. Um, there's a, there's um, a brilliant um, uh, song that was released by an Italian artist, I think, in the late. 60s who didn't speak English who sang it in what he thought sounded like English which you know if you're an English speaker and you want to know what English sounds like to someone who doesn't speak English it's the perfect way for to do it because it kind of vaguely does sound like English but it's complete gibberish that's so Danish <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> yeah right I can see there's a huge sign here saying time's up time's up in red so yeah. I think time is up yeah and in the end yeah and the love um, you take is equal to the love you make so on that on that bombshell on that bombshell thanks very um, much for listening thank you thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's RestIsHistoryPod.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.